All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Is is anyone here familiar with the sports concept of a trap game? Any sports fan ever heard of a trap game before? A couple people. A trap game is when a really successful team is cruising along and they're crushing all the opposition. They're asserting their dominance against really good teams over and over. And then they come up against a lesser opponent on the schedule. For about a decade, that lesser opponent has been my Edmonton Oilers. Um, there's a phenomenon in all four major sports leagues, and I assume all the sports leagues around the world, where the Goliath team will stumble and falter to the lowly David team. They're beating all the best teams in the league, and then they come across this really bad team, and they lose to them. Whether it's a case of the lesser team playing their little hearts out against a greater team, or whether it's the greater team losing focus and treating the opponent with disrespect, trap games are very real. It's a very real phenomenon. Coaches hate them. For example, coming into this season, the Oilers were expected to be very competitive. Now, nobody would have guessed first in their division level competitiveness, but we are believers in the miraculous, right? But the the first two games of the season were against the hated Calgary Flames, our interprovincial rival. And the Flames over the last number of years have tended to own us, just dominate us, treat us like a punching bag. Um, but we won the first game 7-4. The, the inauguration ceremony for Rogers Place. And everyone felt really good about beating the Flames. First game of the year, big win. Then they went to Calgary two days later and beat the Flames again. Not only did they beat them once, they beat them back-to-back, which hasn't happened forever. Um, they beat them 5-3, and the Oilers fans were beginning to imagine the unimaginable, a season where there's more wins than losses. Imagine that. Even though it was only two games into an 82-game schedule, the team and their fans were feeling incredibly confident, and things were looking up, especially because their next two games were against truly awful teams, the Buffalo Sabres and the Carolina Hurricanes. Um, How could we lose against the lowly Sabres and Hurricanes after downing the Flames back-to-back in such dominant fashion? And since I had tickets to the fourth game against the Hurricanes, I was very interested in what was going to happen. I was paying close attention. Well, either you know what happened in Game 3 against the Sabres, or you can guess. The game against Buffalo turned out to be this enormous trap game for the overconfident Oilers. They played more like the last place teams of the previous seven years than the high-flying flame dousers of the first two games. They took a real beating, losing 6-2 to a truly lesser-class hockey team. And real anxiety seeped back into Edmonton about their hockey team. Sure, they beat the Flames twice in a row, but are they... Are they really any better than they had been? All because of one little trap game. So what happened? Things were going so well. They had so much success. Their all-star players had been dominant in the first two games, and now they were showing a worse side of themselves, an ugly, unvictorious, unchampion-like side. How could this happen? Where did that come from? Well, it's been a busy couple weeks uh, between our last passage in Acts and today's passage in Acts. Lots has happened. But last time we checked in, the church was rolling right along, adding thousands of new converts at a time. Every chapter, there's this incredible sermon from Peter. And every chapter, more and more are added to their numbers. They were being filled with the Holy Spirit. They were fueled to perform miracles and bring glory to the name of Jesus. They have tasted persecution, that's true. But they were victorious over it. They were delivered from that persecution by the power of the Holy Spirit. And at the end of chapter 4, 
they had achieved, you might remember this phrase, cardia kaisaiki mia, which means oneness in heart and mind, because of their shared commitment to the teachings and community of their Lord Jesus. Acts 4 gave us a stellar example through Mr. Encouragement, Barnabas. Old Barney epitomizes this cardia kaisaiki mia, which he, when he sells a plot of land and gives it all to the disciples so that the poor can have their needs met. Unity, dedication, faith, and victory. Up to this point in Acts, the church has been enormously successful in every way. But today, we turn the page to Acts 5, and we encounter a very different story. If the early church is compared to a sports team, they've been very much a championship team. A team that understands commitment and sacrifice, togetherness and triumph. But even the champion church is susceptible to a trap game. Today's story reminds me of the Oilers playing the Sabres. There are heroes, heroes that show an ugly side of themselves. There is a major loss. And there is a lack of focus on what truly makes us successful. Not individual plays for pride, vanity, or glory. But rather a dedication to sacrifice that will benefit the whole team. We're going to read uh, our passage from the last Acts sermon, uh, starting at Acts 4.32, just to set the stage, but our focus today is on Acts 5.1-11, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So turn with me to Acts chapter 4. All the believers were united in heart and mind, cardia kaisaiki mia, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was on them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. So, so far, everything's going tickety-boo. Everything's great. Everything is successful. They're unified. They're giving. They're everything God had formed them to be. But there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife, Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he had kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied. That was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Instantly she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Trap game. Things were going well until... To help us understand the context of this story, we really need to know about a guy in the Bible named Achan. Anyone familiar with the story of Achan? 
it's a fairly obscure story, but I remember it. Fit, I remember reading it for the first time vividly in Old Testament class. It's it's a story that has stuck with me. He's found in the book of Joshua, and the book of Joshua is basically the Old Testament mirror to the book of Acts. Joshua, like Acts, immediately follows the foundational books, the Torah in the Old Testament, the books of law, and then Joshua comes next. And in the New Testament, it's the Gospels, those foundational books, and then Acts. Immediately following, they, they both immediately follow the books of the law, and they both take up the story of Israel after the death of their leader. In Joshua, it's the death of Moses, and they need to continue on without him. In Acts, it's obviously Jesus, right? They need to continue on without him. The book of Joshua begins with the Lord's charge to his people. And you might remember what that charge is. It's repeated throughout chapter one of Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. He gives that message through Joshua to the people. Be strong and courageous. That's the Lord speaking to his people. They are then strengthened by his presence. And for the first time as a body, the nation of Israel crosses the Jordan and enters the promised land. It's this great victorious moment. This moment of things are finally unraveling as they should. They have a great victory over their enemies at Jericho, led by faithful obedience and divine power. So that's the first six chapters of the book of Joshua. Victory, victory, victory. And does that sound familiar? Doesn't this sound an awful lot like the template for Acts? Acts immediately follows the Gospels, which are like the perfected law. Uh, taking up the story of God's new chosen people after Jesus' death. Acts likewise begins with a charge from the Lord. Acts 1 begins with Jesus telling them what they need to do, just as God had told the Israelites what to do in Joshua. After this, they are strengthened by the Lord's presence, this time through the Holy Spirit, and they likewise expand as a body. In Joshua, that expansion meant they went into the promised land and began to take control of it, as they had been promised. In Acts, it's, it's not about conquering and military might. In Acts, it's about expanding as a body. So numbers are continually added to the people, to the kingdom of God. Instead of a nation like Israel, the church is a kingdom, and their promised land is a life lived under the guidance and presence of their master. Like Israel, before the formidable walls of Jericho, Peter and John face off against the mighty Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is just like Jericho. Um... There's no way they could conquer it by themselves. But they are victorious, led again, just as Israel had been in Joshua, led by faithful obedience and by divine power. So what does this all mean? Well, so far you can make an argument that the formation of the church, as being told by Luke, is a mirroring of the formation of Israel. They look very much the same. It's a very similar plot, if you will. And as with the book of Joshua, the book of Acts begins with victory after victory after victory. Everything is going right for the good guys until they encounter a trap game. And the traps are remarkably similar. In Joshua, it is the greedy and dishonest disobedience of Achan that leads to Israel losing a battle against Ai immediately after the battle of Jericho. So they conquer this huge fortress, Jericho, um, not by their own power, but by the power of the God that they serve. And then their next battle is against Ai. And they look at tiny little Ai and they think, well, we don't even need to send our full force in there. We only need to send a couple thousand soldiers. We can take it no problem. But those couple thousand soldiers are soundly defeated. They're 
chased away by the people of AI. And, and the people of Israel are wondering, what's going on? AI shouldn't have been a problem at all. What is happening here? So why did they lose? After the great victory against Jericho, why did they lose to AI? Well, because God had told the Israelites to totally destroy Jericho. Leave nothing, take nothing, destroy it all. Kill everyone, demolish every building, leave no stone on top of another stone. Except, of course, for Rahab, because she had been loyal to Yahweh. But everything else was to be destroyed, and they were to take no plunder. And most of them obey, but not Achan. Achan steals a Babylonian robe, this fancy robe, and some coins, uh, about 200 pieces of silver, and a bar of gold. So he see, as he's, they're defeating Jericho, he sees these things, and he takes them for himself. And for this act of selfish disobedience, Achan and his entire family are stoned to death, and their bodies are burned, and piled under a bunch of rocks in the desert. Pretty severe. In Acts, everything is going smoothly, right? Victory after victory after victory. Nothing but glory and growth and victory so far, right? Well, definitely, until we meet Ananias and Sapphira. The English translation of verse 2 says the couple kept back some of the money. That, that's what their crime was. They kept back some of the money. But the Greek word for kept back is nosfizo. And a better translation for nosfizo isn't kept back, but rather pilfered or embezzled. Stole, in other words. Interestingly, in the Septuagint, which the Septuagint is the super important, in Jesus' world, everybody spoke Greek. Okay, Not everybody spoke Hebrew, so they translated the Hebrew into the Greek. And the way they did that was they got 70 scholars together to translate all of the Hebrew into Greek. And legend has it that all 70 of them translated it exactly the same, which is why it's called the Septuagint. Septuagint means 70 or group of 70. Anyway, so it's this super important translation of the Bible into the the language of the people of Jesus' time. Does that make sense? And when they translated the Septuagint, the word that they used for Achan, for how he plundered, how he stole the plunder was Nosfizo. The same word, pilfered, plundered, illegally took when he shouldn't have. You follow me so far? Now, this is not a Greek word that comes up very often. It's not a common Greek word. So the fact that Luke uses that word of Ananias and Sapphira tells us that he's trying to connect those two stories. It's such a rare word, and Luke is clearly drawing a link. Just as we're supposed to understand Ananias and Sapphira in light of the story of Barnabas and his extraordinary gift and his graciousness and his generosity, just one verse earlier in Acts, we are also supposed to understand Ananias and Sapphira in light of the story of Achan's sin. There's a positive and a negative light that this story is shed up against. But here's the problem. There are major differences between Achan and Ananias and Sapphira. For instance, Achan and all the Israelites were under a clear command from the Lord, do not take any plunder. You are not to take anything. They all knew that. They were told that beforehand. However, for our doomed couple in Acts 5, there is no clear commandment. They are not told they need to sell everything and give the money to the church. They are never told they need to do that. In fact, as Peter himself says in Acts 5, the property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. You didn't have to do this. You chose to do it. And he continues, he says, after selling it, the money was yours to give away however you see fit. Unlike Achan, Ananias and Sapphira were free to do whatever they wanted with their treasures. 
They were under no compulsion whatsoever to sell it or to give all of the proceeds to the community fund. If Achan, back in Joshua, if he had taken even one silver coin, he ended up taking a lot of silver and gold and fancy stuff, but if he had taken just one silver coin, he would have been guilty of it all. He would have, The same punishment would have happened to him for just one coin. But if Ananias and Sapphira had told Peter, hey, we sold our field, we bought a smaller field, and we kept some of the money, but here's a portion of what we sold. If they had given just a small portion, they would have been fine. They would have been celebrated. It would have been this incredible act of graciousness and generosity. They wouldn't have been struck dead. Unlike Achan. Achan, if he took one little bit, guilty. They didn't have to give anything, and they're guilty. Another difference. In Joshua 7, Joshua himself goes to Achan and pleads, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, by telling the truth. Joshua confronts them. Admittedly, this is after, so Israel, everybody recognizes Israel's guilty of something, and so they draw lots to find out which tribe it come from, and then which clan within the tribe, and then which family within the clan, and it lands on Achan. So there was a degree of surreptitiousness that he was hiding it. But Achan, to his credit, confesses to everything. When Joshua goes to him and says, be honest, what happened? Achan is honest. He's totally honest. He still gets obliterated, but at least he gives glory to God first after his leader confronts him and earnestly asks him to tell the truth. Ananias, on the other hand, gets no such opportunity. This is where I struggle with Peter in this story. I don't know if you do too, but I don't like the look of Peter here. And I'll, I'll talk about that here in a minute. But Ananias, he's confronted by Peter and then drops dead. He is given no chance to repent, given no chance to be honest about what he did. Sapphira gets it even worse. Peter seems to goad her into telling a lie. He comes up to her and says, hey, um, that money from the field, was that all of the money? And she says, uh, yeah, it was all the money. I mean, she had an opportunity to tell the truth there, but he kind of goads her into it. He doesn't warn her that her husband had been dishonest and had died for it. Don't you think he could have warned her? He doesn't beg her to give glory to God and tell the truth as Joshua did for Achan. Even Peter. Now, remember, this is Peter for whom betrayal and selfishness and cowardice would be still painfully fresh in his own mind. But even Peter offers the couple no chance for redemption or forgiveness. And I struggle with that. I don't like the look of Peter here. It's as if I had found out that Dale didn't come to help sort bottles because he was busy watching March Madness basketball. Which seems reasonable for Dale. So I went to him before church and said, So, Dale, you couldn't help sort bottles because, what, your back was hurting or something? And he said, Oh, yeah, I tweaked it real bad at work the other day. And I said, You didn't tweak it. You're just a lazy degenerate and you didn't come help. You tweaked it laying on the couch. Yeah. Down he would fall. And then Dale drops dead in the foyer. That would not be very pastorly of me, I, I don't feel. It, it didn't really lead him to honesty, did it? Kind of goaded him into dishonesty. It didn't really offer him a gift of redemption, did it? It cursed him. Well, Peter does a similar thing here. And as I mentioned, I wrestle with that. It doesn't seem very gracious. It, honestly, I just can't see Jesus treating the couple as Peter treats them here. Can you? When Jesus confronts the woman at the well, he does a similar thing to Peter here. He says, so where's your husband? And she says, uh, actually, I 
Don't have a husband. He's right. I know you've had many husbands and you're sinful with all of them. But does she drop dead there? No, she is healed and redeemed and made a disciple. That doesn't happen here. I'm not sure what the difference is. Well, I'll talk about what I think some of the difference is here in a minute. Why didn't he take Ananias and Sapphira aside and warn them? Why didn't he give them credit for everything they did donate and not worry about a few coins here and there? Why do Peter and Luke and God himself seem to equate Ananias and Sapphira to the sin of Achan? Well, to answer that question, I want to ask you another question. What exactly is the sin of Ananias and Sapphira? What are they guilty of? Heard lying, tested the spirit. Yeah, all great answers. And all connected. Yeah, you're right. It's not just that they lied. It's not just that they were greedy. It's who they lied to and why they were greedy that led to their judgment and connects them to Achan. The reason for their greed is clear. It's not just that they wanted the money. That was their motivation. They could have done that. It would have been fine. They could have just sold them their land and had the money and been more wealthy than they already were. I'm not sure that would have been the best choice, but they wouldn't have been condemned for it. The reason for their greed is something else. They wanted a share of the esteem, of the prestige that Barnabas had. They saw what Barnabas did. They saw how everyone held him in such high esteem because he was so generous, and they wanted a piece of that. In fact, They wanted to appear more gracious. They were probably more wealthy. They could have been. They they might have been more wealthy than Barnabas. So they wanted to appear just as gracious, but without all the actual costs of total sacrifice. They wanted their cake and to eat it as well. So they wanted to look good and still keep some money. They showed that their prestige within the movement was more important to them than the needs of the needy. They just wanted to look good. Their deeds were noble. It is good to sell everything you have and give any of it to anyone. Can we agree that that's a good thing to do? A noble thing to do? So their deeds were noble, but their motivations were crooked, and it contributed to their punishment. Furthermore, Peter makes it very clear who they are lying to, and it wasn't Peter, as Dale said. To Ananias, he declares in verse 4 that you weren't lying to us. You were lying to God. In verse 9, he denounces Sapphira by saying, How could the two of you even think of conspiring to what? Test the disciples? Test the people of the church? Test the poor? No. How could you think of conspiring to test the Spirit of the Lord like this? Remember when Jesus is in the desert being tempted and uh, Satan leads him to the top of the temple and says, Hey, jump off. The angels will guide you to the, to the ground. Nothing will, no harm will come to you. What's Jesus' response? You shall not put the Lord your God to the the test. That's straight out of Deuteronomy. I don't remember where in Deuteronomy. I feel like six. I should have written it down. That's straight. He's quoting scripture right back at Satan who had quoted scripture to him. Satan actually quoted the Psalms to try and tempt him to do this thing. But Jesus knows that tempting the Almighty is putting yourself above the Almighty. It's saying, here's what I want. Let's see you do it for me. Let's say you do this thing for me rather than me do this anything for you. It is a great blasphemy to put the Lord our God to the test. 
And so the problem is that by lying to the church, they were lying to the living body of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The church isn't just a bunch of people. There's more to it than that. Um, perhaps this is part of what Jesus was talking about in Luke 12 when he says, anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but anyone who what? Blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. That is a tough verse. I don't, I don't really know what to do with that verse, honestly, fully. But I take it seriously because the church is not a country like Israel was with a temple like Israel had. Instead, the church transcends nations and the church is the temple. We are God's chosen people, but more than that, we are God's holy dwelling place. He has chosen to rest and to reside in us. The church is God's living incarnation. We are his hands, we are his feet, we are his voice, we are his presence. Therefore, when Ananias and Sapphira tell the disciples, oh yeah, that's totally all the money we earned. We gave you everything. Maybe you should praise us like you praised Barnabas. When they say that, they're not just lying to Peter. They are lying to the church who used those funds to further God's kingdom. They are lying not just to the church, but to the Holy Spirit himself. They are testing his grace. They are towing the line between discipleship and dishonesty. And in their case, it is a fine line. That's what's at stake in Acts 5. What it means to be a true disciple and what the costs of selfish dishonesty will be. To paraphrase Jesus, what's the point of gaining fame and reputation amongst your brothers and sisters in the church if you're forfeiting your soul in the process? What's, what's the good of gaining respect if it's at the cost of your very soul? So if God needs to use these two greedy people as enormous warning signs for the rest of the church, I think he's entitled to do so. In fact, if their lives are the cost for the rest of us to learn the dual lessons of having pure kingdom motivations for our good deeds and to be honest with ourselves and with the Holy Spirit, well, I grieve for them. I don't celebrate the fact that Ananias and Sapphira had, had to be punished like this, but I understand why they are made examples of. This cannot happen in the church. We need to be fully honest with who we are and who we're serving. Our priorities need to be proper. We don't do good things so we look good to expand our kingdoms. We do good things so that he is glorified and so his kingdom is expanded. And remember, the harshness of the judgment on Ananias and Sapphira, it worked. It worked perfectly. The very next passage, verse 11, says, Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. But still, as we'll see next week, more and more and more people continue to be flooding into the church. People didn't see what happened in Ananias and Fire and say, whoa, I can't be part of a movement like that. If I keep even a few bucks, I'm going to die on the spot? They, that's not what happened. This judgment, it worked. It convinced people of who exactly they're serving. And, and continued growth continued to happen. The warning was harsh, but it was effective. Remember that these are people who expected to be raptured at any second, right? They took very seriously Jesus' words that he is returning soon. So be prepared because I'm coming back right away. They took that seriously. They thought it literally meant nobody would die if they believed in him. And yet here's two of their companions, not just companions, rich and powerful companions, people who have a status in the greater community. Here's two companions struck dead, just like Achan, right in the midst of all that victory and success and celebration of the church for simple disobedience and dishonesty. 
That must have been a huge eye-opener for everyone else, don't you think? I mean, when I read this story 2,000 years later, it's still an eye-opener to me. And hopefully to you as well. It's not supposed to be part of the plan, we think. What's going on? Victory, 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 death? That's not supposed to be part of the plan. They weren't expecting it. No kidding. It led them to clean up their act a little bit. No wonder they recommitted to cardiac hypsychemia, oneness in heart and mind. No wonder they promptly reconsidered the sin within their own lives and re-examined their own motivations and priorities. And it's no wonder that we are called to do the same. It's true that God cannot abide sin. He hates it. He hates seeing it corrupt his people as it corrupted Achan and as it corrupted Ananias and Sapphira. He hates that. He's holy and he cannot stand beside corruption like that. We should all feel fortunate that all the, the, the much greater sins that we commit don't leave us carried out and buried like these two. Think about it. I've done far more selfish things than sell everything I have and keep a little bit of it. Haven't you done far more selfish things than that? I absolutely have. I've been just as concerned as Ananias and Sapphira have with looking generous or looking important or looking powerful without making any actual real sacrifice. I think in my time, I was vice president of PYPA. Uh, remember PYPA? It's like a big deal. I loved PYPA. And I was vice president of PYPA. And you know what I did with my vice presidentship? Nothing. I went to the meetings in case the president at that time, Nicole Kemper, if, if she couldn't do it, then I had to do it. I made a couple announcements at the conference itself, but I totally ran for vice president so that I could be vice president of something that I loved. It was all for the glamour. And what glamour it was, let me tell you. I, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying is I've done way more selfish things. I've been way more concerned with my appearance and my reputation and my prestige than Ananias and Sapphira were. I've been just as dishonest with myself and with my Savior as they were. I'm just as bad as them, probably worse a lot of the time. I can be this real steaming pile of trash, spraying Febreze on myself to make myself seem less trashy. But I'm still trash, and I'm certainly not fooling the spirit who's chosen to take this trash pile and make it his home. I'm not fooling him. And so I'm just as trashy as Ananias and Sapphira, so why haven't I been disposed of like trash? Why haven't I been burned to a crisp like trash on the spot like they were? Why not me? Just how patient and gracious is our God anyway? And so the story of Ananias and Sapphira is an important one. The church is not a collection of perfect people. It never has been, certainly isn't now, and the Bible never attempts to portray it as such. The story should serve as just as strong a warning to us as it did the early church. We should read this and we should be gripped with fear as they were. That's the purpose of the story. The warning is this. Watch out for trap games. Even when things are going well and you're victorious and you're rolling right along, watch out for trap games. Even when things are going well, our broken humanity is there waiting to trip us up. We get wrapped up in appearances. We get distracted by selfishness. We be become ignorant of his will and his kingdom. We coast along into dishonest discipleship where it looks like we're serving sacrificially, but there's actually no real cost to what we're doing. That is a lie. And it's a lie that we need to guard ourselves against. 
The only ones we're deceiving, really, are ourselves. Because the Holy Spirit knows all truth, even the truths that we think we've buried and covered up effectively, like Ananias and Sapphira. This reminds me of David in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is one of the most powerful pieces of poetry I've ever read. And you need to know the backstory to understand the power. Well, you don't, you don't need to. It's powerful enough on its own. But when you understand the backstory, it's that much more powerful. In, in Psalm 51, David is confronting the, what has to be considered the low point in his life. Where uh, he slept with a married woman, Bathsheba, murdered her husband, and then used his prestigious power to cover it all up. Totally abused the system and ruined this family. But he couldn't cover it up from God. He, he couldn't. And so even though real people were really hurt by David, he still wrote in Psalm 51 that it is against you and you alone, O Lord, that I have sinned. It's against you and you alone? What about, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? I think you sinned against him pretty hard. I think you sinned against Bathsheba. There's all kinds of people that you involved in this web. But, but David says, no, it's you and you alone that I've sinned against. Ultimately, all sin, whether it affects others or whether it affects only ourselves and our soul, all sin is an affront to our creator. It affects him since we are his temple and his kingdom is supposed to be our first priority. So David's right. We hurt the people around us, but what really matters is that we, we have sinned in the eyes of our Father. So, continue to do good things for his glory. But remember, even good things can be done for bad reasons. The consequences of doing things like that are very grave. They should grip us with fear. Don't make, it make you stop doing good things. Continue to serve. Continue to sacrifice continue to submit. But please be aware of the buffalo sabers of faith. The things that are waiting to trip us up because we're not prepared, we're not disciplined enough. So beware the buffalo sabers of faith, especially when everything is going well and you are experiencing success. That's when the trap games come. Watch out for selfishness, for self-importance, for disingenuous discipleship, and watch out for greed, 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 greed. You are better. You are better than those things. You are better than dishonesty. You are better than greed. You are better than selfishness. And you are only better because of the Holy Spirit living in you, making you better. But it's like the Oilers to the Sabres. You should handle these things. You are able to handle these things. There is no reason why you need to lose to these things. Acknowledging, of course, that we're fallen and we're broken and we're sinful and we will lose to these things. Well, that's not how we should see it. We should see ourselves as more than conquerors, better than these things. We can defeat these things. Actually, we can't. The Holy Spirit in us can and will. So don't let them trap you. Don't just play for yourself, but sacrifice yourself for the greater team. Keep working hard for victory with Christ as our coach and the Holy Spirit as our captain. And can you tell that I've had the Edmonton Oilers on the brain all week? <laughs> It is hard to preach stories like Ananias and Sapphira where we don't understand why they happen and we frankly think it's a little harsh what happened to them. Couldn't they have just been yelled at and then fixed the problem and be redeemed? No. No, they couldn't. Because this is a problem that cannot stand in the church. We cannot do things just to look good. We cannot do things that, that make us lie to the Holy Spirit within us. The church is better than that. And we cannot fall victim to trap games like that. Let's pray. 
Jesus, you are so good and so worthy of everything we have to give. You are worthy of all our, sub- our submission, our sacrifice, our servant, our, our service. You are worthy of all of that. We acknowledge that we do a poor job of giving you everything we have. But Jesus, I do celebrate the sacrifices made by this community of brothers and sisters, by this church. I thank you for their honest service. I thank you that they give cheerfully and graciously and don't ask for any credit or or any prestige out of it, that they do it because they love you and they love the people that we are serving. So I thank you for their generosity. I pray that you would continue to shape us into people who look nothing like uh, Achan or Ananias and Sapphira. Continue to remove greed and selfishness and dishonesty from us so we can bring glory to you and you alone, not ourselves. Um, Holy Spirit, continue to shape us. We love you, Father, and uh, it's a privilege to be your people and to learn and grow together. Help us uh, to be more honest and more gracious in giving as you grow more and more in us. All of these things we pray in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen.